0: Hello out there in download land, and welcome to episode 8 of Charlie's Geekcast. My name is Charlie Niemeyer, and today we are going to continue our look through Grant Morrison's JLA run with a look at issue number 5, which is Morrison's only standalone issue in the entire run, and we're going to look at the Secret Files and Origin special, which actually came out a few months later, but this seemed to be a better time to put it in without messing up the pacing of any of the stories in the ongoing book when it actually comes out. But um, I really don't have anything else for preamble, There's the email box is full of cobwebs because it's so empty, and no new reviews, so here's a couple of promos, and then we'll be right back with our first issue. Yeah! The Bronze Age of Comics, an era largely ignored as far as Superman goes, and an era that some consider to still be part of the Silver Age. Sure, a lot of people know about the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, where all the Kryptonite on Earth is turned to iron and Clark Kent goes from a newspaper reporter to a TV reporter. Then there are the Alan Moore stories, for the man who has everything and whatever happens to the man of tomorrow. But in an era that lasted 15 years, surely there's more to the Bronze Age than that, right? Well, my name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every other week, I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era of Superman in the Bronze Age. Featuring such stories as the return of Jonathan Kent, two meetings with the amazing Spider-Man, the Phantom Zone miniseries, the enlarging of Krypton, and more. Plus, J. David Weider also joins in to take a look at Superboy's Bronze Age adventures. So join in the fun at www.supermaninthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com
1: Since the day Bruce Banner was bathed in Gamma Rays, he has fought the creature within. The creature torments Banner. The creature is unstoppable. The creature is incredible. Now, the countdown has begun to Banner's greatest confrontation with the Hulk. And all of his internal battles have come down to one moment. One final chance to reclaim his life and be whole. And three words will change the Hulk and Banner forever. Honey, I'm home. Bigger. Smarter. Greener. The Hulk is taken to new heights as writer Peter David delivers an all-new phase for the Jade Giant. And Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, is bringing it all to you. Join J. David Wheeder. Lee Busby and Michael Bailey as they turn a new corner and cover the all new, all different Incredible Hulk. Find the Ultimate Hulk Podcast Experience weekly at iTunes and at IncredibleHulkHomePage.com Homepage.com. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast. Experience the epic like never before. Yeah.
0: Alright, JLA number 5 had a cover date of May 1997 and a release date of March 5th, 1997, at a cover price of $1.95. The cover was by Howard Porter and John Dell, and is colored by Liquid, who was actually starting to gain popularity at this time because of their beautiful-looking digital coloring. As of when this issue was coming out, Marvel was using them a lot, especially on their Heroes Re- uh, return titles um, and several actually, a lot of their covers they colored a lot of the Marvel color covers at this time, as well as cover um, the as well as covering books like Fantastic Four and at least one of the X Men books, I believe. You don't see them much anymore, so I'm not sure whatever happened to them, but they were pretty cool at the time, anyway. The cover of this issue is really cool. It appears to be the outside of the JLA Watchtower. You can see Earth in the background. And on the cover, you see several heroes, uh, because this, uh, this issue is the start of their membership drive. And it even says on the cover, the new faces of the JLA. On the cover, we see Steel, Plastic Man, Green Arrow, uh, the Connor Hawk Green Arrow, because, well, let me explain this real quick. In issue 101 of Green Arrow, yes, 101, Oliver Queen died. Uh, He was killed in an explosion. His son Connor Hawke, who basically had been training with arrow with a bow and arrow for a long time in a monastery, who Oliver Queen didn't even know uh, a son that Oliver Queen didn't even know he had for quite a long time, uh, took over as Green Arrow he doesn't use the trick arrows he just uses the real thing and he's a quiet guy he's not a gung-ho character and at this point he's just starting out and he's not really sure what to do with girls that's one of the that's a thing that comes up he's just never had any experience with girls before so that's an interesting story all on its own uh, but we have Steel, Plastic Man, Green Arrow, Artemis from the Wonder Woman books, uh, Hitman from, well, Hitman, Superman in his blue suit, which I will get, I'll talk about in just a second, and a mysterious woman that we've never seen before, whose gloves are colored differently than they are inside the book, which is interesting. Now, before I get into the issue, there's one big thing I want to point out. Uh, this month is the same month that saw the publication of Superman t- 123, which if you aren't aware, is the issue where Superman officially adopts his blue and white containment suit costume and becomes what was built at the time as the Superman for the 21st century. Which is actually kind of ironic since he was out of this costume and back to his normal attire a good three years before the turn of the century, but that's neither here nor there. Um, now, while this was sort of set up and planned for over in the Superman books, from what I've been able to read, apparently the memo about all this did not reach the JLA office. So, for several issues, the stories were written and the art was done with the intent of Superman being in having his regular powers. I, he'd also gotten his hair cut when he got married to Lois, um, it's a long story on that one. He had, he had lost his powers, got his hair cut when he got his powers back, his hair stayed short. So, you know, he was he already had a haircut. So, several issues of JLA were were prepared and apparently at least somewhat in the can when the JLA office found out that Superman's powers were changing. So, this led to a bunch of hasty edits and quick art changes shortly because publication of these issues um... which also led to the fact that um... as far as the artwork went the complete model for the character in his new uniform I don't know how to explain it... it's not complete so also over the next few issues we'll see some inconsistencies with the way the suit looks compared to how it looks in the main Superman books we're also going to see a few inconsistencies with his powers because like I said his powers in these next few issues were based on him being regular you know, the regular Superman in the blue and red costume stronger than, you know, man of steel, faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, yada 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 and instead, he's supposed to be an energy being that looks like a smurf. I will point some of these out in the story but I just wanted to make you aware because it's kind of important coming up and this is the first issue in which we see him in the new costume. Now the title of the story is Woman of Tomorrow, written by Grant Morrison, penciled by Howard Porter, inked by John Dell, colored by Pat Garahay, computer separations were done by Heroic Age, lettered by Ken Lopez, and edited by Ruben Diaz. And we get the classic JLA roll call with Wonder Woman, The Flash, Green Lantern, Martian Manhunter, Batman, Aquaman, and Superman. Here is a true story of the Justice League of America. It begins with the cork being popped off of a bottle of Dom Perignon Perignon. as T.O. Morrow and Professor Ivo celebrate their collaboration on a new android meanwhile at a cemetery that serves as a memorial for all fallen superheroes Superman and an oafish guy with a baby are the only attendees at the funeral of Rex Mason aka Metamorpho which saddens the man of energy considering how many people were actually at his funeral but as the I don't know what to call this guy but as the officiant, the funeral officiant explains, everyone knows that these days, you know, no one ever stays dead for long, and it's kind of a waste of time to go to a funeral when they're just going to be back in a few months. So, that kind of explains it. It's nice to see that even in-universe, people have noticed this thing. So, after the funeral's over, Superman zips off to the Batcave, as it is the site of the nearest JLA teleporter. He plans to teleport to the Watchtower for a JLA meeting, which Batman can't attend, because Gotham comes first, and currently the Mad Hatter's Looking Glass people are running amok on Paris Island. While Superman sets up the teleporter, Batman is receiving JLA data about a CGI-looking entity known only as IF, which is causing electromagnetic havoc wherever it appears, and it's moving east. While all this is going on, Green Lantern and Flash are at the watchtower, busy playing a ring construct video game or video game fighter, complete with 32-bit polygon graphics. When Superman shows up, the meeting convenes, and the latest JLA recruitment drive begins. Among the candidates are Supergirl, Steel, Damage, Artemis, Hitman, Guy Gardner Warrior, Plastic Man, Aztec, the Connorhawk Green Arrow, and Max Mercury. Max declines membership due to him being busy mentoring Impulse, who at this point is rapidly approaching puberty. But he doesn't miss the chance to take some pictures before he leaves, because, you know, he's never been to the moon before. Damage, well, he, he accidentally ends up damaging the ceiling, and the landing pad, and some other thing. Hitman declines because, you know, he kills super people for money. And he really only showed up to check out Wonder Woman with his X-ray vision, so he can die happy now. Soon, all the interviews are finished, but as the JLA talk things over, an unexpected candidate crashes into the meeting room, and then stops to the debris in mid-flight. There's no mention as to this preventing air and everyone from escaping into space, but I'm guessing she controls that as well. She is this android from earlier created by T.O. Morrow and Professor Ivo, and she introduces herself as Tomorrow Woman. For some reason, she's accepted into the JLA over all the other candidates after, and after only one week, passes all of the initiation tests. Meanwhile, the rest of the team have been dealing with IF, so she joins in and over the next several days works with the team and begins earning their trust. After one particular battle, the mad scientists bring her in to prepare her for the next step. While they're busy patting themselves on the back for their ability to create such realistic android, complete with body temperature, sweat glands, and a, com- and a perfectly working brain, they prepare her electromagnetic pulse weapon that will cause all electrical activity in the brains of the JLA to cease, killing them. The next day, the JLA begins another battle with If, while Superman, G.L., Tomorrow Woman and Wonder Woman and Martian Manhunter are busy rescuing people, Batman tells Flash what he's found out about IF. IF stands for Implicate Field. It is a weapon of advanced 32nd century quantum technology that the U.S. military confiscated of from the Lord of Time's arsenal. Which actually brings up the question of why the U.S. military has been helping the JLA this whole time, but that's never mentioned. Apparently, the best way to stop IF is with an EMP wave to wipe out its core memory. So the Flash teleports down to Earth and races to the rest of the team, informing them of, Bat- of what Batman told him. Tomorrow Woman says that she can generate the MP wave, but she doesn't want to because even though deep down inside she's a bad person, she doesn't want to hurt the rest of the team. And while Morrow and Ivo bicker about their android betraying them, we see Tomorrow Woman fly straight into If and generating the EMP wave close enough to deactivate it without harming the JLA. While Superman flies off with what's left of Tomorrow Woman's android body, Martian Manhunter and Wonder Woman somehow find and arrest Morrow and Ivo. And this true story of the Justice League of America ends with another poorly attended funeral. But this wasn't a funeral for a robot. It was a funeral for a hero. And after a couple of quick promos, we'll move on to the notes for this issue. Hey
2: everyone, Sean Engle here.
3: And Strange Disembodied Voice here.
2: Hey, it's good to hear from you. It's been a long time. How have you been? What have you been up to?
3: Oh, not much. Working with other podcasters, palling around with Sonic Owl,
2: prepping for the Mayan Apocalypse. You know, the usual. Neat. Anyhow, uh, glad we got back together since the show, Just One of the Guys, is coming to a turning point and since you were there at the beginning, I thought it'd be appropriate that you be here now.
3: Ooh, are you finally changing formats and doing your epic coverage of the Al Milgram Opus of US-1?
2: Um, no. I'm going to start coverage of the Kyle Rayner stories in Green Lantern.
3: And that supposedly is more impressive than the trucker who can receive CD
2: signals through a metal plate in his head? Undoubtedly. Plus, I'm still going to be covering the ongoing saga of Guy Gardner.
3: will he be getting a metal plate in his head to allow him to receive CP signals?
2: No, nothing quite that ridiculous. Although, the stories will involve him getting alien DNA, becoming a living weapon, and punching Nazi dinosaurs.
3: Seriously? Yep. So all of this, yet the epic tale of a trucker who's vying to avenge his death of his brother caused by a man who sold his soul to the devil for a satanic 18-healer is just too goofy? Precisely. (sighs) Whatever. So where can I find out about all these changes?
2: Lots of places. For one, you can go to www.justoneoftheguys.lipson.com to download the shows, check out the covers of the books, and leave comments on individual show postings. You can also find the show on iTunes just by searching for Just One of the Guys Podcast, and you can leave a review there as well. So after you finish
3: these books up, you'll cover US 1?
2: Maybe. I've still got that Dallas Dynasty show with J. David Weeder to do. And Scott Gardner has approached me about doing an NFL Super Bowl podcast that he wanted to do in conjunction with the 25th anniversary of its release. It's come check it out every Friday at justoneoftheguys.libson.com. Hello, everybody,
4: and welcome to the podcast promo for How to Make a Geek in 60 Minutes. I'm Johnny Freiburg. Say hi, Knox. Hi, Knox! And so we are a podcast about comics. Well, mostly. We also talk about other geeky stuff. And originally our gimmick was that Knox was new to comics. Say hi, Knox. Hi, Knox. He's been reading for a couple of months now, so maybe he has a little bit of a better idea. But he's still fairly new, you know, a couple months. Most of you have been reading all your lives, so have I. Say hi, Knox. Hi, Knox. Now, why don't you tell him where you can find us? You can find
5: us at howtomakeageek.libsyn.com.
1: Now what do I say? Uh, also on iTunes.
5: Also, you can find us on iTunes. Yes,
4: that's right, iTunes, at How to Make a Geek in 60 Minutes. So just search that. How to Make a Geek in 60 Minutes, with Nox Van Horn and Johnny Freiberg.
0: Okay, my notes for this issue. Page one. We see Tio Morrow and Ivo, and they are classic Justice League villains. Ivo built Amazo way back before the Justice League even had their own title in their third appearance in the Brave and the Bold series and Morrow built Red Tornado who whether you know this or not um, also ended up turning good and joining the JLA for a long time and shortly not long after just, uh, the, this JLA series convenes he will end up kind of being the mentor for Young Justice Page 2 this is really cool because we get the j- classic JLA roll callback. This was a staple of just about every Justice League issue back in the Silver and Bronze Age. And it's, which is kind, and it's kind of funny because Martian Manhunter seems to have posed for it as he's the only one that's actually looking directly at the quote-unquote camera and is smiling. Everyone else is kind of looking off in different directions, except, well, Wonder Woman and Superman are kind of looking straight ahead, but they're kind of looking stoic and because it's the new Superman, there's a question mark next to his name, which is kinda interesting. Uh, page four. Here we see Superman carrying the teleporter tube around, which unfortunately, with his new energy powers, he would not have been able to do since he didn't have super strength anymore. Also, with his energy powers, as we'll see in a little bit, it probably would have been quicker and easier for him to just zip up to the moon. It's hard to explain. He kind of teleports himself. I mean, he flies in this in this streak of lightning, but he basically... it's basically so quick it's like a teleport. So technically, he could have just zipped from the funeral up to the moon faster than going out to the Batcave, getting the teleporter set up, and then going up that way. But again... Even with his old powers, he probably would have done that quicker. I don't know. No, I believe it takes about an hour for him to fly up to the moon, so it would have been quicker for him to take the teleporter tube. Excuse me. So that makes sense with his old powers, or with his classic powers, but with the new powers, it wouldn't. Anyway, but again, like I said, and like I said, I'm going to point these out, but as I said, you know, this was written with his old powers in mind page 5. Kyle says he prefers Superman with short hair, which Superman somehow hears without his super hearing. Although, Superman asking if he went too far is kind of funny. Um, this and another, an earlier word balloon from Batman, they have different style of lettering, so you can tell this was they were added in after the rest of the lettering, so it's, it's a little jarring to see it, but it is kinda of funny. He goes, so you think I need a haircut, Kyle? Did I go too far? So that's kinda of funny. Also, I'm wondering how they know that this thing is called IF, if they don't know that. I don't know how they found that out. I should point out what this IF is. Basically all you can see, and all it looks like on this thing, is a big ball that shoots out lightning. The ball looks like a rendered CGI ball. It's kind of got a 3D-ish look to it. It looks like a computer-generated image that just they just keep inserting on the page. The lightning that shoots off of it is hand-drawn. Kind of cool. It, it kind of distracts. Again, though, I still don't know how they knew what the name of it was. Page seven. The membership drive is actually pretty funny. But I'm wondering why Hitman was even considered. I mean, it's cool to have him in there as a cameo and to have him do the Wonder Woman thing. But the Justice League would know that he kills superheroes for money, or super people for money. So number one, they shouldn't have considered him anyway. And number two, when he went up there, they probably would have arrested him. So that that was just a little weird. Uh, let's see, page 9 Kyle says that he liked Green Arrow and Aztec, which on one hand is actually kind of funny because they are literally the only superheroes that have less experience than he does at this point but it's also kind of a red flag because not too far from now both of them will join the JLA and they're actually the only two from this issue of candidates that do join the JLA spoilers Page 11. Superman says that Tomorrow Woman is the only one who's been fighting If every single day. Even though you can clearly see Martian Manhunter uh, fighting just as often as Tomorrow Woman. In fact, on one of the panels, she's sitting down and having some coffee or or a beer or something with Green Lantern in a little ca- cafe, while in the background, you see Flash and Martian Manhunter cleaning things up. So, I don't know. Uh, Page 12. Superman flies with Tomorrow Woman. But, again, with his energy powers, since Superman didn't actually fly, he just teleported, basically. um, That means that, really, he couldn't be flying alongside of her. It's also noticeable on page 14, when you see the trail of Superman flying which is basically a straight line coming at you, and Green Lantern is flying these zigzags like he doesn't know how to fly or he's just having a lot of fun flying, but he's keeping up with Superman. Even with the old powers, I don't see how that makes any sense. But, I don't know. Um, And page 17. The most ironic part about this story and the confusion over his powers. With Superman's new powers he could have created the EMP wave and prevented Tomorrow Woman from having to sacrifice herself. Unfortunately, like I said, they didn't know about that so Tomorrow Woman did that and it's just the way the story was done. Now, what I do not know is if they knew about that far enough ahead that they could have changed the story and didn't either due to lack of time or because uh, this whole story was important that it played out the way it played out. I'm not sure. Or, perhaps they didn't find out about that until afterwards, and then they're just kind of like facepalming. But, um, yeah. For the most part, this story could kind of be taken out of the run and you wouldn't have too many problems and it would solve and it would save you a lot of the headaches but as it turns out it is kind of one of my favorites partially because of all the stuff i've mentioned and also because it's really the first full issue i, I was able to read of superman in co- in this costume with these powers even though he didn't actually use them so. um... overall though like I just said, it's one of my fun. It's one of my favorite stories. Despite all the consistency problems, I thought it was a fun story. If you think about it, with Superman having his old powers, it's a lot better. Um, some parts of the story do feel a bit rushed, so that it would fit into a single issue. They've already been tackling if for a while by the time the story ish, uh, starts, and we don't find out exactly how Wonder Woman and Martian Manhunter find. Morrow and I've Ivo, or how they even know that they were, that they did this. Granted, it's an android, and a very sophisticated one at that. But by this point, they've been fighting against guys, bad guys who could create lifelike androids, or they've fought against other guys that could do the same thing—aliens, what have you. So I'm not sure what event what gave them those two away. I guess Martian Manhunter could find them, but it seems to have occurred at roughly exactly the same time. So I guess it brings up the question, did the Justice League know and allow Tomorrow Woman to be on the team anyway? And oh, That's kind of weird. Like I just said, ironically, this issue came out about a week before Superman 123, which is kind of funny, since technically the week that this issue came out, Superman was still trying to fight... Was he fighting Scorn? I don't remember. But Superman was trying to do his Superman thing. Still, the cape was gone by this point because his energy powers had caused it to kind of burn up. But he was still trying to do the super thing but wearing his old costume and trying to just hold himself together. So when this issue came out, you know, this technically is the debut of the new costume. I mean, granted, you they had been in solicits for a while. They had they had, had ads for it for a little while. People knew this was coming. But technically this issue would be the debut of the new costume. Um and that does kind of make the discrepancies even more understandable. The Now see when I bought it, I bought it the same day as Superman one twenty three, so I thought they came out the same week. The, date, the release date I'm getting is from um, Mike's Amazing World of Comics at DCIndexes.com If that release date is correct then I'm kind of wondering why they didn't just leave him in the regular Superman costume for one more issue. Since they didn't have a problem with him having long hair while he didn't, the only thing I can think of is because this was supposed to be a pretty big push for DC with Superman's new powers. It was probably an editorial decision above even Ruben Diaz's. Is the only thing I can think of. The story is still fun, and I like the idea of a robot going against its programming. Although, after now creating two androids that ended up going good, I'm pretty sure that Ivo won't be working with Morrow ever again. Because his, his computer brains are so sophisticated that they can generate their own programming now. So it's kind of redundant. Unless it's not going up against the Justice League, which does them no good. Um, but that's it for the Justice League issue. So I'm going to do a couple more promos, and then we'll look at the other issue from this episode. In 2008, they thought they destroyed us.
4: For so many years of trying, they thought they cut the head off the snake. They doomed us, destroyed us, sent us away forever. But even then, the whispers could be heard. We're not dead yet. We will not go quietly into the night. We will not die. Without a fight. And then. On November 1st. 2011. The whispers. Were given a voice. That started small. And grew large. That whisper said. We are coming. And then on April 1st. 2012. Those whispers of a few grew into the whispers of a many. We're not dead yet. We're back. And then those whispers grew into a voice. And on May 26th, those voices shout out loud. We're back. the televised revolution as we drift through outer space aboard the absolution with time back in active duty is captain in charge of bringing superior anime action yeah, you came to the right place. If you have a taste for animation and deep space, space, broadcast through your television due to the progress of the bring back to Nami Twitter mission. The same block that brought a Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball Z is back. So stay tuned. I remember way back, never leaving my room. I stay glued to my TV week. They have the news. Yeah. And thanks to Ado Swim, I have a reason to use the TV in my room again. Cause every night I'll be tuning in Since they going back to show when action tunes again Toonami's back bitches Wait, did you say Tsunamis back bitches? That's the official hashtag if you missed it To celebrate Tom's return to television Yeah, Toonami's back bitches Wait, did you say Tsunamis back bitches? That's the official hashtag if you missed it To celebrate Tom's return to television The Absolution Network Your home of the Toonami Generation since 2011 is your place for the reviews of the very best animation, both past and present. So come, join the revolution. Join the Toonami Generation at www.an.132productions.com
5: Do you enjoy time travel in general, and the Silver Age of comic books in particular? If so, join me each week on the Superman Fan Podcast. My name is Billy Hogan, and I will be your host. Together, we'll crash through the time barrier and fly into the past to explore the Silver Age adventures of Superman. One week, we'll take a look at the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and soon... And your emails are always welcome at supermanfanpodcasts at gmail.com And don't forget to wear your red indestructible cape.
0: Okay. The next issue is JLA Secret Files and Origins number one which had a cover date of September 1997 and a release date of July 23rd, 1997 and a cover price of $4.95, just mostly because of the size of the issue. The cover is by Howard Porter and John Dell and is going to kind of be reproduced for another issue of JLA uh, coming up mostly because, well, I'll get to it when I get to that actual issue, but just know that this issue, the cover of this issue is going to be redone pretty soon. The art looks pretty good here. I don't know who does, did the coloring on it. It is definitely Porter and Dell, although it looks a little th- thick on the inks to be Dell. The only discrepancy I see in the way everything everyone looks is, again, Superman's costume. The S-shield extends too far down his chest, and with his energy powers, the idea was that his hair was supposed to kind of consistently be blowing upward, kind of, and here it's down and he's got the spit curl. so I don't know. Well, let's see. The first story of the issue is Starseed, written by Grant Morrison and Mark Miller, penciled by Howard Porter, inked by John Dell, colored by John Caldis, edited or lettered by Ken Lopez and edited by Casey Carlson, as he actually edited this entire issue. Now, this story is supposed to f- is considered the secret origin of the new JLA. Our story begins in Blue Valley, Nebraska, where hometown hero, The Flash, is called in when a star-shaped UFO materializes inside an office building. I should probably clarify that. Wally West and his family are from Blue Valley, Nebraska. As The Flash, he lives in Keystone City. Sorry. He calls up the JLA satellite as he rushes into the building. Inside, he sees that the office workers are in a trance state with star-shaped creatures clinging to their faces. He runs upstairs to where the ship is and sees something off-panel that surprises him before he's attacked by several of the star creatures, one of which latches to his face. Soon, at the JLA satellite 22,300 miles above Earth, the creature uses flash to tell them that the creature on his face is merely a probe. The ship is the conqueror, and it plans to conquer the entire planet, and more. Wonder Woman wants to go down and attack, but Batman suggests coming up with a plan first, since it's already overcome one of the most formidable metahumans on Earth. And since the UN asked the current League to vacate the satellite, that means that they are now the new JLA. But before they can really do anything, the Spectre shows up, telling them to ignore Blue Valley, because plans are already underway to deal with the problem, even though it means a nuclear strike. The League will not let that happen. So, to show them what will happen if they interfere, the specter draws them within himself. There, they find themselves in Blue Valley, but before they can do anything, they find themselves overcome by the star probes, with each of them getting one latched to their faces. With the JLA under the conqueror's control, Metropolis is the next to fall, followed by Chicago and several other cities and states. Soon, in less than 24 hours, the entire United States is conquered. Later, there's an uneasy alliance between heroes and villains, which ultimately proves pointless as, within 36 hours, the entire planet is conquered. Soon, they, all, they move on to Ron, in neighbor, neighboring Alpha Centauri, Thanagar, Tamaran, and more, and then the entire universe is conquered. Then, the Conqueror is still hungry, So he breaks through the time barrier, and even Krypton, Oa, and other lost worlds are conquered. And all of this because the League did not heed the Spectre's warning. Upon being released by the Spectre, the League find themselves at a loss. Well, except for Batman, who will just go by himself if he has to. So, Spectre says that since he's only a regular human, his capture would have no effect on the fate of time and space, so... He doesn't care if Batman goes. So the rest of the League decide to give up their powers so that Batman doesn't have to go it alone. Once they arrive in Blue Valley, they prove to be pretty pointless, as Flash quickly takes them all down once the Conqueror realizes realizes that they don't have their powers. However, they do turn out to be enough of a distraction for Batman to slip inside, climb up the elevator shaft, and get to the main control room. Flash quickly catches up, but the star probe realizes something's wrong as the probe weakens due to Batman managing to sabotage the air conditioning so that the current temperature in there is 10 degrees below zero and falling. This gives him a chance to knock some sense into Wally, allowing him to break through the probe's control and remove the star from his face. He then goes through and destroys all of the computer systems in the room, causing the UFO to explode but not before both heroes are able to escape at super speed. At this point, the specter returns the leaguers' powers, telling them that the future shall be safe in the hands of the Justice League. Now, I've only got a couple of notes for this little story. First, um, and I'm going to have to use the page numbers of the, of the full book, because the pages for the individual stories are not numbered. But on page 17, I know this is inside the fake future that specter showing them but if they go back and conquer krypton and oa before you know before the i don't know before hal jordan becomes green lantern and before superman lands on earth or before krypton blows up even that really messes up with the time stream in ways that i can't even wrap my head around because that pretty much prevents the justice league from forming in the first place which means that they didn't conquer... I don't know. I don't even want to get into it. Page 20. I love, on this page, that Superman's entire reason for giving up his powers and going down to Blue Valley is so that Batman doesn't have to go alone. Because they're teammates. And here we're having Grant Morrison trying to bring them back to more of their pre-crisis friendly relationship rather than the almost at odds with each other all the time that they've been having. And page 24. When did Batman have enough time to rig the AC? And what system could possibly get the temperature down to 10 below zero that quickly? My only guess is that maybe Miller and Morrison got confused and we're going with Celsius and maybe that is how it worked. I don't know, but that's the only part that I really had a problem with. He, I mean, because, I don't know, that just seems a little far-fetched. Granted, I know we're talking about a story in which we have an alien from a dying world who's more powerful than any human on Earth, and a kid with a with the most powerful weapon in the universe on his finger, and a guy that can move at super speed, and a Martian, but still. Uh, overall, though, I really enjoy this story. It fits in between *Midsummer's Nightmare* and *JLA* #1 pretty seamlessly, and it's nice to see Superman in his traditional costume again after the f- after him being in that blue suit for a few months. By the time this issue came out, plus it sets up the story from issues 23 and 24, so it's nice that it will have some meaning later on. Also, apparently, Starro was not part of DC continuity at this point, since no one seems to have made a connection between the Star Conqueror and Starro, despite the similarities. The art was great, as usual, Um, and in my opinion, I thought that this story was a better paced done in one story than what we saw in Issue 5. You had a beginning, middle, and end, there didn't seem to be anything cut out of it, it just worked um but that's it for the first story the second story I'm gonna cover and I will get to the let me I should mention uh, between after this story they did a couple of profile pages which makes me feel like I'm going to be doing a couple of some some who's who stuff Uh, let's see the first one they did of course is Superman complete with his blue and white costume uh, he, they call him the Man of Tomorrow. Of course, real name Calel, Earth name Clark Kent, occupation journalist and novelist, base of operation Metropolis, marital status married to Lois Lane, height six three, weight two twenty five, eyes blue, hair black. First appearance historical, was in Action Comics number one. The current version Man of Steel number one from nineteen eighty six. And it reads, An alien by birth and an Earthman by choice. Superman was and remains the world's greatest superhero. The guiding force behind the formation of the new Justice League and the example metahumans across the globe must aspire to. Superman, Superman's existence has changed the world forever. The moment his presence on Earth was officially declared, a shift occurred in the public consciousness, which has altered social trends, religious beliefs, street fashions, and race relations. The world knows Superman will always be there for them, and, though he accepts his role as an iconic hero figure, he occasionally longs to be accepted as an average human. Even the other members of the JLA expect him to perform miracles, with notable exception of Batman, who recognizes that even Superman has his limitations. Some suspect that this may be the basis for the strong bond between them. See what I was saying about trying to bring that back? And, of course, it also says that the containment suit stores energy, which is transformed into other powers. Uh, And he has the powers of teleportation, intangibility, supervision, and the creation of electromagnetic fields. Now, the artwork on this was by Paul Ryan and Jose Marzan Jr. And it's colored by Tim McCraw. And it looks beautiful. I'm a fan of Paul Ryan anyway, uh, especially when he was on The Flash, and the fact that he was on Superman for a while, at least on Man of Tomorrow, just really made me happy, but he does a very good job with this version of Superman. Uh, then we get The Lost Pages. Uh, the Lost Pages story is basically the new Superman meets the JLA. It was written by Mark Millar, Miller, sorry, art by Don Hilsman lettered by Albert D. Guzman colored by Tim McCraw and edited by Casey Carlson. At the JLA Watchtower as the team prepares to let in the new membership candidates Superman flashes in to place his bid for a spot on the team the others still consider him part of the team even with his new powers but Superman says that since he's basically a whole new person he needs to try out for the team again so we get test number one which apparently is weightlifting uh, Green Lantern creates an well, basically it looks like an anvil construct on top of an anvil construct and currently at 10,000 kilograms and it's no problem for Superman. He's not using super strength to hold it up he is creating uh, an electromagnetic field around the construct allowing him to lift it without super strength regardless of the weight he then uses the same power to disrupt the electromagnetic impulses in Green Lantern's nervous system to break uh, his concentration and cause the construct to break up, which is not something he does very often in any books, but is kind of a cool thing to see. T- test number two: speed. Over through this, we learn that he is f- he can almost keep up with the flash. He can move so fast that he can go from Beijing, or I'm sorry, that he can go from Buenos Aires to Beijing in three thousandths of a second. Again, this is not something that really they focus on too much, but he can do it. Test four apparently is some kind of a water test. Apparently, the water does not seem to have any influence on his powers, but he is able to sense a school of electric eels in danger about a mile from his current location. Which apparently, judging by the art, shocks Aquaman. And test number four, despite the fact that she only holds up three fingers, is combat. Wonder Woman attacks Superman. But he turns it intangible and absorbs the force of her blows with his powers, then releases all of that absorbed energy back at her, sending her flying. And that quickly ends the tests. With all the tests complete, Superman is welcome to the team. Next up, it's time to start the candidate interviews from JLA number 5. Now this story is so short I really don't have any notes on it, but I did find it to be a fun little story. It doesn't fit perfectly between the panels for JLA 5 as technically we get Superman we get a Superman entrance twice since in the original issue he teleported up and in this issue he well just zips up like I said he should have before and also Superman does seem to be showing off a little bit he's having a blast with his new powers now I feel like I should point out that in the actual Superman books he had to learn to use his powers even after he got the containment suit. He didn't completely understand them and completely have them down. So the fact that he's so good at it here, when this is basically shortly after, or it's supposed to be taking place shortly after his powers had changed, it's kind of um, a continuity problem. But I can kind of look past it. It's just a fun little. Four-page story. Uh, then we get another uh, cool-looking profile. This time for the man hunter from Mars, with art by da- Don Hillsman. Uh, real name Jean Jones or John Jones or various other names. Occupation private detective slash various. Place of birth Mars. Base of operations Zanzor in the Antarctic Circle. Marital status widowed. Height six, seven, weight 300 pounds, eyes black, even though it's usually colored red, hair none, and his first appearance was Detective Comics number 225 in November of 1955. As is common among telepaths, the Martian Manhunter is an intensely silent figure. Even in his darkest moments, his mood is often reflected only by the expression in his eyes. When he speaks, others listen. His accent is deep and indescribable. The sound of red sand on a Martian plain, the scent of his home world, twinkling on a cloudless night. Possibly the most highly regarded by his JLA peers, he is a founding member of every incarnation of the team up to this point. An alien whose loyalty to his adopted world is beyond words. The others meet socially on occasion, but Jean prefers to use his shape-changing powers to maintain several identities where he can move among the humans he admires so much and learn firsthand what it means to think aloud with such awkward beauty tellingly Jean is the only leaguer to whom Batman defers Green Lantern is his favorite of the group Aztec is the one he knows has a secret and we also have little notes that his powers include flight, super strength, Martian vision, telepathy, and super speed, and he has the natural Martian ability to alter his physical shape and density. The next profile page is Green Lantern with art by Daryl Banks and inks by Terry Austin, which means it looks really, really cool. And this is the, creative, the main creative team on the Green Lantern book, which is also written by Ron Mars and this one is called the Emerald Crusader, Green Lantern. The note about his powers is the ring is the most powerful weapon in the universe. It creates solid light images which can be shaped to take the form of anything the wearer imagines. And we see him on some kind of anime-inspired speeder bike kind of thing over the city. I mean it looks really cool. Uh, Real name, Kyle Rayner. Occupation, freelance artist. Base of operations, New York City. Marital status, single. Height, 5'11", which means I'm a little bit taller. <clears throat> which means I'm a little bit taller. Weight, 175 pounds. So I'm a little bit heavier. Eyes, dark green. Hair, black. First appearance, Green Lantern forty eight, second series. Which is actually interesting, because in his earlier appearances, his eyes were brown. You can look through them all you want. His eyes started off brown. They later turned to green, but they started off brown. Anyway... One of the youngest members of the team, Green Lantern makes up with with enthusiasm what he lacks in experience. Regarded by the others as a major player, he describes himself as the rookie, insecure knowing that he wasn't selected as a Green Lantern like his predecessor, inheriting the ring instead by a twist of fate. However, as Superman recently explained over a lunch in Vienna, most superhumans owe their positions to chance, himself included. But Green Lantern's doubts are always there. In a group composed of two aliens, an Atlantean, a woman formed f- from clay, and a man who can think faster than light, he is least comfortable around Batman, a non-powered human who, earned it, who earns his place among the gods by the willpower Kyle Rayner believes he will never have. The enlargement of the team has been good for him, enlisting members he can relate to and who share his sense of awe at where they are. And the next story we have in the book is Day in the Life of Martian Manhunter. Written by Mark Miller, art by Don Hilsman, letterer Albert Guzman, colorist Tom McCraw, and editor Casey Carlson, basically the same people that brought you the secret, or the Lost Pages story. Our story begins on the JLA Watchtower, where Martian Manhunter has nothing to do. After all, Aquaman's on monitor duty, and the Flash has cleaned, polished, and reorganized the Watchtower several times already today. So, he heads down to Earth. And since most of the active superheroes are in North America, he decides to look in on things elsewhere. In Peru, he stops a tornado. In another unnamed place, presumably still on the south end of the planet, he stops a plane crash. In Sydney, Australia, he stops a villain calling himself Dr. Dreamcatcher, who turns out to be protesting against some Japanese conglomerate mining aboriginal sacred land for uranium deposits which, he notes, he'll have to look into. In Antarctica, he returns to Zanzor to rediscover Mars and to use the technology to process a mineral encoded with Martian shape-changing DNA that the miners could use as an alternate power source. Then he decides to relax on one of his secret identities. Today he will be New York City private detective John Jones, movie buff with a peptic ulcer and an allergy to house cats. Today, he's working at Multiple Homicide. However, it turns out it's actually just a grave robber. Next, he goes to Metropolis and adopts his identity of Johan Johnson, an immigrant cab driver. Shortly after that, he delivers his mineral to the Japanese miners, who agree to leave the Aboriginals alone. And an hour later, he's back in the watchtower, this time on monitor duty, where he takes some time to pray for peace. Again, this is too short for actual notes, but i got a few things basically, Martian Manhunter has a lot of free time on his hands. This is before he got his own title. So, you know, they really didn't know what to do with him yet. But So it's a really cool little four-page tale. I enjoyed it. Maybe it's five pages, I don't remember. Um, in some ways, it actually read like, felt like I was reading an All-Star Superman I- issue. Uh, you know, he's going around performing all these rescues, He's creating a mineral. He's got tons of secret identities, and can switch to any of them. He's got his own fortress, technically. Uh, He has fun in his secret identities. He's smart enough that he can solve a murder case in, like, just five seconds. And he, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to explain. He just... It just felt very All-Star Supermansion to me. Uh, It's interesting also that he apparently prays to God at the end of the story. And the only reason I'm saying that is because I thought that if they've ever mentioned it before, it was some kind of a Martian God. You know? And the fact that he not only prays... Well, he can pray to God all he wants. That doesn't bother me. The fact that he refers to him as God is what gets me. Instead of some Martian name like god gore or something like that. Oh, <laughs> and I just noticed, if you look at Johan Johnson's cab, it's got some bumper stickers on the front. Uh, they say, Mars or bust, hug your planet, save the wombat, and I break for superheroes. So that's kind of cool. Um, that's the last comic story. The next up we get the uh, profile page for Wonder Woman, the Amazon Warrior. Her notes say that she possesses incredible strength and the power of flight, bracelets which can deflect bullets, and a magic lasso spun from the girdle of Gaia. Her real name is Diana. Her occupation is an ambassador. Base of operations is Gateway City. Her marital status is single. Height, 5'11", same as Green Lantern, how about that? Weight, 135 pounds. Eyes blue, hair black. First appearance, historically, is All-Star Comics number 8 from winter of 1941. Current version, Wonder Woman number 1 from February 1987. The only, fem- the, the only female member of the team at present, Diana sits most comfortably among these heroes as they watch over the Earth from their moon base headquarters. Daughter of Queen Hippolyta of Themyscira, Diana was raised as a warrior princess, accustomed to the respect of her subjects and the unquestioning loyalty of others. Her graceful and confident manners smooths over what might be regarded as arrogance to some, making her a popular member of the team. Her inspirational qualities and technical experience position her as perhaps their natural leader. However, certain tensions exist among what might be regarded as the core of the group, and Diana's Amazonian upbringing impresses Batman least trained for trained for war as an Amazon Diana's message is actually one of peace a seeming contradiction for some members but one that Diana dismisses with the wisdom that there is often conflict in the achievement of goals next up we there's like this interview a fake interview with Martian Manhunter which is going on a little long so I'm not going to deal with it. Uh, the next one is for a person that's not well, that we haven't actually met in this uh, because he comes up in the next issue. this is for Zariel, the winged wonder and at this point he's not really a member of the team yet even when this issue had come out. But um, this says uh, Zariel. His angel wings, Enhance strength, and a sonic cry capable of disintegrating almost anything. And he welds a flaming sword. His real name is Zariel. Occupation: Guardian Angels. Base of operation: Heaven. Seriously. Marital status: Single. Height: six eleven, or I'm sorry, six Weight: one hundred and eighty pounds. Eyes: purple and red hair is silver, and his first appearance is JLA number 6, which we'll talk about uh, next month. A guardian angel in the Heaven's eagle host for a million years, Zariel renounced his immortality after falling in love with the human he was assigned to protect. The Pax day were surprised at his decision to give up a promising future in the Army of Heaven, and his departure aroused the suspicions of a cadre of angels who knew he had overheard their plans to unseat God. A number of these traitors, all members of the Bull Host and led by the King Angel Asmodel, followed Zariel to Earth and would have destroyed him if not for the intervention of the Justice League. Defeated but unbowed, Asmodel and his flock returned to Heaven to continue their schemes, and Zariel was offered a place in the JLA. An obvious contender, his previous role taught him to cherish the lives of others, and his knowledge of the occult and ancient combat techniques allows him to play a unique role in the team. Hopefully that won't prevent you from coming back in a month to see how that story unfolded. The next profile page is for Aquaman, King of the Seas. His notes. He's got a harpoon that can be fired when necessary and is cybernetically controlled. His super dense body can withstand the pressures of the deep. He can travel underwater and he can communicate telepathically with the sea life. His real name is Arthur Curry. His occupation is Monarch. His usual base of operations is Atlantis. His current mat- marital status as of this r- issue is separated. Height, one. Weight, 325 pounds. His eyes are aqua blue. His hair is blonde. And his first appearance is More Fun Comics, number 73. From November, 1941 in this pantheon of the gods aquaman is neptune king of the seas and master of almost three-quarters of the earth his name is feared and respected from the shallow shores of the mediterranean to the blackest depths of the Marianas trench where the blind fish swim and only he can walk every living thing in the sea knows their king would willingly die for any one of them as they would for him a broad bombastic man a peerless warrior king and truly a great storyteller aquaman is an inspirational figure in his new or Aquaman is an inspirational figure in this new team. Often silent, as is his way, he speaks with an accent as beautiful as a whale song and is and an informed clarity the others cannot ignore. Difficult to know at first, Aquaman takes his time forming relationships, but will always be there for you when he does. Wonder Woman is the teammate with which he has most in common with, Martian Manhunter, the least. Next up is Aztec the Ultimate man. Uh, His powers include flight, strength, invisibility, X ray, and infrared capabilities. His helmet controls his powers as well as forming his armored costume. His real name is Kurt Falconer. His occupation is Doctor. Base of operations, Vanity. His marital status is single. His height is 6'2 weight, 185 pounds, his eyes are blue, his hair is blonde, and his first appearance is Aztec the Ultimate Man number 1 from August of 1996. Nominated for the team with a ringing endorsement from Superman, Batman, and Green Lantern, Aztec currently looks as though he's set to become a high flyer in the new Justice League. However, as will soon come to light, there is evidence from his past that links him to a global conspiracy reaching into the farthest corners of the DC Universe, the new Injustice Gang, and a reclusive cult who plans to usher in the end of the world at the earliest opportunity. Aztec himself is a well-meaning innocent, engulfed by events beyond his control and manipulated by the smartest man alive, Lex Luthor. His membership in the League has created a moral dilemma. He wants to help but in joining, he may provide a terrible force of evil with the means of defeating the team forever. Only the Martian Manhunter is suspicious of his membership." Which is kind of weird. I guess technically that's a spoiler for several issues. That's kind of weird too. Anyway, hopefully you'll forget I've read that in a couple months. Next up is the Emerald Archer, Green Arrow. And the only thing it says about his powers, martial arts expert who can fire his arrows with almost superhuman accuracy. His real name is Connor Hawk. His occupation is adventurer. His base of operations are various. His marital status is single. His height is 5'9". His weight is 160 pounds. His eyes are green. His hair is blonde. His first appearance was Green Arrow number 0 from October 1994 in costume. Oh, and in costume, Green Arrow, 91, November of 94. The only known son of the original Green Arrow, Connor Hawk, is the living antithesis of his volatile, womanizing father, Oliver Queen. An earnest young man with a mature and thoughtful nature, he was nominated for the team by Green Lantern in a bid to enlarge the membership. More recently, however, he has begun to suspect... He was only invited to join because Green Lantern was tired of being the only inexperienced member, an accusation Kyle Rayner emphatically denies. More comfortable in the company of older heroes, Green Lantern has formed a strong relationship with Aquaman, the two of them often teaming up as Aquaman recalls hilarious bombastic adventures of oh recalls hilarious bombastic accounts of his adventures with Connor's late father. Accused of nepotism by those who failed the membership drive, the Justice League insists Green Arrow is more than a boy with a bow and arrow. They owe him their lives as he single-handedly defeated the Key, which we will see in a couple months. Moving up, we have we're going into the villains now. First up is the Key. Uh, his powers: he's a super escape artist with a measure with an immeasurable scientific mind, and is armed with hallucinatory. I'm sorry, Hallucinatory Psychochemicals. His real name is unknown. His occupation is a would-be conqueror. His base of operations is Mobile. I don't know if that means Mobile, Alabama, or it's always moving. But I'm going with always moving. His marital status is unknown, but... I'm hoping he's single, because... Ugh, ain't nobody got time for that. Uh, his height is six-one. his weight is 197 pounds. His eyes are brown, his hair is brown, although the image that they have drawn is giving him red eyes and white hair. So whatever. And his first appearance ever was Justice League of America number 19 number 41 from December 1965. This is a man for whom doors have no meaning. Your locks, bolts and alarms are useless if he wants to get you. No authorities can control him. No prison can contain him. The key will find a way, and no one is safe. A former technician in the narcotics division of Intergang, the key is believed to boost his formidable brain power with regular doses of a psychochemical of his own invention, a drug that sets his ten senses tangling with life and his brain racing with ideas, plans, and designs mere humans could never hope to understand. Aided by his shambling clockwork key key men, He is every child's nightmare. Several incarnations of the Justice League have faced him over the years, most recently in his bid to interface with his conceptual mate, The Lock, and assume control of all space and time. At the moment, his consciousness has been trapped in an endless fractal time maze constructed by the Martian Manhunter, but the key always finds a way out. The next one is for the Injustice Gang, which actually is done drawn very nicely by Barry Kitson. Uh, The members of the Injustice Gang are Lex Luthor, the Joker, Mirror Master, Cersei, Ocean Master, Dr. Light, and a mysterious seventh member. First appearance, JLA number nine, which we'll be getting to... actually, which came out at the same time as this issue, so... or same month as this issue. We will be getting to that in a few months, down the line. Just as the Justice League was formed in reaction to the worsening supervillain problem, the Injustice Gang was created by those very villains in response. The new JLA sent genuine shockwaves through the underworld recently, and a team was put together under the super intellect of Lex Luthor to act as a counterbalance to this overreaching and interfering elite. The antisocial, psychotic, and often genocidal personalities that make up this new gang aren't natural team players, but the cool guidance and violent mind games of Luther have forged them into a terrifyingly effective force for evil, constantly on the brink of mutiny and betrayal. The team is held together only by a common fear of their leader, although it's clear Lex Luthor has an unspoken agenda of his own. Then again, doesn't he always? Uh, Next, Um, remember how we mentioned about the Lord of Time earlier? Well, now we get to learn about him. The Lord of Time. His costume and arsenal are constantly changing depending on which time period his weapons have been stolen from. So he looks really weird on this image. Anyway, his real name is unknown. His occupation is a would-be conqueror. Base of operations, various eras in the time stream. Marital status, unknown. Height. Five, nine, Weight, 159 pounds. His eyes are blue, his hair is black, and his first appearance was as Justice League of America number 10 from March 1962. He is the first four-dimensional supervillain, and his f- first strike might take place tomorrow and his next on the warmest afternoon of your childhood, years before either of you ever met. The Lord of Time is a fugitive from the future, a convict from an era when modern man finally catches up with the ancient aboriginal concept of time and space, where all creation exists simultaneously and our perspective of the fourth dimension is all that currently restrains us. His slight build and awkward features are dangerously deceptive. The Lord of Time is skilled in warfare techniques not to be developed on Earth for almost 50,000 years, armed to the teeth with an ever-changing arsenal spanning 10 million years, and the outrageous ability to jump forward, backward, and diagonally in time to his tactical advantage. Time waits for no man except one. And you want to know the most ironic thing? We don't see him again during this run of the Justice League. Just thought I'd point that out. Next up, they show a JLA timeline. I'm not going to go through this whole thing, but basically, it's the entire post-crisis history of the Justice League, from year one all the way to the current team. And something to keep in mind, of course, is instead of one woman in the early days, it was Black Canary, but we get all that stuff. His first, you know, first time that they've teamed up, Snapper Carr joining the team. JSA, JLA, First Encounters, um, the post-Legends version of the team showing uh, being created, them splitting up the new versions of the team where it was split in two, one led by Superman, the other by Green Lantern, Superman eventually dying, uh, and then, of course, moving all the way up to the current Justice League. Uh, The next is a two-page spread drawn by Phil Jimenez, featuring every hero that has ever been a member of the Justice League. In the background, you can see Dr. Fate and Phantom Stranger. And in the foreground, you see a lot of heroes. A total of 99, to be exact. I'm not going to go through them all here, you're just going to have to trust me that there are a lot of guys here. Uh, The next page is another two-page spread by Phil Jimenez, and this time, it's got all of the villains that the Justice League has ever fought. There's 127 in here. And it's not just fighting them together as a team, or it's not just someone that's, you know, fought them I mean, it's anyone that's fought him. Even Doomsday's here. And ironically, Star of the Conqueror's down here, too. Interesting. And yet, the Star Conqueror that we just saw is not here. So I guess it's not everybody. But I just want to say oh, all the member of the Hyperclan are here. But I just want to say that Phil Jimenez is a great artist. This is still in one of his earlier times, but he is a great artist. I just want to say that. Uh, And let's see. That's it. Wait a minute. What about Batman's page? I totally skipped the Batman page. No, I didn't. It's not in here. And I apologize. Uh, There is a Batman page. Unfortunately, my copy of the issue does not fit that page, which is really weird. So, uh, well, you all know his... uh, He's Batman. He's really smart. I mean, heck, I can make one up real quick. Real name, Bruce Wayne. Occupation, philanthropist, and crime fighter, I guess. Base of operations, Gotham City. Marital status, single. Height? Uh, let's go with whatever Superman's is. 6'3", sure. High, weight? Probably about 225, 250. Eyes are blue, hair is black. His first appearance was Detective Comics number 27, and the current version is... Um, basically Batman number 404 I believe and as everyone knows Batman's parents were killed he dedicated his life to preventing that from happening to anybody else he went around the world to train at the hands of the masters came back to Gotham and became the dreaded Dark Knight detective he's had several different Robins but he never gives up the fight how's that work for you that's going to bring us to the end of the episode I want to thank you all for joining me in this little adventure through the Justice League next time on a brand new episode of Charlie's Geek Cast we'll take a look at the syndicated cartoons of the 1980s and then next month we'll be returning to the JLA for a look at the two part story featuring the JLA versus Asmodel or Asmodel Asmodel and Neron. I'll see you then this has been an episode of Charlie's Geek Cast, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. The show's website is www.charlie'sgeekcast.com, where you'll find notes and images for each episode. Please feel free to leave a comment there, or email the show at charlie'sgeekcast@gmail.com, at gmail.com, and I'll read them on the air. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes. I also have another show called Superman of the Bronze Age, where I cover Superman comics published between 1970 and 1986. You can find that at www.supermanofthebronzeage.com. Charlie's Skeet Cast is an I-Don't-Have-A-Fake-Company-Name production. All images and music used are copyright their respective copyright holders. Thank you for listening, and God bless.